This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 29, Antimicrobial Stewardship in Companion Animal Practice. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host, never afraid to bring the jibber-jabber, it's Shailen Jassani. Hello and welcome to the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast with me, Shailen Jassani. Thank you very much for joining me once again. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about antimicrobial stewardship in companion animal practice. But before getting into the podcast, I just wanted to say a few things. Firstly, my apologies that it has been so long since the last episode. As I'm sure at least some of you know by now, um, I'm setting up a new multidisciplinary small animal specialist referral center in the southeast of England called the Ralph after my cat that died in 2010. Ralph was actually the inspiration behind my non-profit pet loss support resource that I started in 2011 called the Ralph site. The Ralph will, of course, have a referral emergency and critical care service, and there is also going to be a new charity operating from within the premises. I'm sure that I will keep you all updated with progress on future podcast episodes, including as I move towards more active recruitment. In particular, if any of you nurses listening to this think that it might be of interest, then do let me know and I will make a note um, for us to discuss in the future. And as I say, it's going to be based in the southeast of England. Anyway, needless to say, this does mean that I'm very busy, and um, increasingly so, which is the only reason I've not been able to do a podcast episode recently. I also had to prepare a number of talks for the recent British Small Animal Veterinary Association Congress, which took up some of my time as well. Some of you may have attended and others seen this online, but one of my talks in particular that was entitled Better a Week Too Soon Than a Day Too Late Euthanasia. Um, that talk has received a lot of attention, and I'm, of course, I'm happy to do my part to ensure that these matters get discussed more openly in the profession. The second thing I wanted to say was just to thank all of the people who have left five-star ratings and review comments in iTunes. Um, there have been a fair few since the last episode, including from different countries around the world. And it's really great for me to see how technology allows free information to be accessed so readily. So I really appreciate you taking the time to send me this feedback. And I often get emails from people as well that are very lovely and complimentary. And, and as I say, I do very much appreciate your feedback and apologize once again for not being able to publish these episodes as frequently as I would like to. Okay, so let's get on with the episode. So the episode is about antibiotic stewardship in companion animal practice. What I thought I would do was to just start by giving you a quick high-level reminder of some bacteriology and of some of the antibiotics that are used most often in practice, 
before going on to talk more about the antibiotic stewardship aspect. So remember that bacteria are single-cell microbes, although they often function as multicellular aggregates that are known as biofilms. They are classified into five groups according to their basic shapes, with the spherical or cocci and the rod-shaped or bacilli bacteria being the most common. They can exist as single cells in pairs, chains, or clusters, and bacteria are further classified as gram-positive or gram-negative according to their structure of their cell wall. So gram-positive bacteria have a thick cell wall, whereas gram-negative bacteria have a comparatively thin cell wall. And the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria includes a lipid membrane that contains lipopolysaccharides and lipoproteins. Lipopolysaccharides, which are also called endotoxins, are composed of polysaccharides and lipid A that is actually responsible for much of the toxicity of gram-negative bacteria. By combining morphology and gram staining, then most bacteria can be classified as belonging to one of four groups, so gram-positive cocci, gram-positive rods, gram-negative cocci, and gram-negative rods. And I think it's probably fair to say that at least in the context of companion animals, gram-positive cocci and gram-negative rods are probably the ones that we encounter most commonly. The other classification that we tend to use clinically is whether the bacterium in question undergoes aerobic or anaerobic growth, and potentially also whether this type of growth is obligate or facultative. Now, there's obviously a lot more to this than what I've presented here, but I hope that it acts as a quick refresher for you. I now want to remind you about some of the antibacterials that are used most commonly clinically and about their theoretical spectrum of activity. Um, Before I do, though, I want to just stress the theoretical nature of this information. And I say this because, as always, we need to remember that what the books and the papers say about what happens in vitro and what actually happens in vivo in real living animals, and in particular, in clinical patients that have different diseases and different sites of infection. This theoretical versus real-life clinical situation is not necessarily the same. And there are a bunch of things going on in actual patients that may affect the pharmacokinetics, the efficacy, and the effects of antibacterials. And this is definitely something that we need to keep in mind. It is common practice to refer to antibacterials as broad or narrow spectrum according to the range of bacteria they are meant to be effective against. But have you ever stopped to kind of wonder what that actually means? And in fact, although commonly used, there are no clear and logical definitions for these terms. And indeed, some antimicrobials that are often referred to as narrow spectrum can actually have wide-reaching effects on the bacterial microflora in an actual animal. Another point is the classification of antibiotics as being either bactericidal or bacteriostatic. So bactericidal antibiotics kill bacteria directly and bacteriostatic antibiotics stop bacteria from growing. So there is an argument that this apparently clear distinction only applies under strict laboratory conditions and actually is inconsistent for a particular agent against all bacteria. The distinction is more arbitrary when agents are categorized in clinical situations. 
So although bacteriostatic versus bactericidal data may provide valuable information on the potential action of antibacterial agents in vitro, it is necessary to combine this information with pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data to provide more meaningful prediction of efficacy in vivo. Remembering, as always, that the ultimate guide to treatment of any infection has got to be patient-centered clinical outcome. The other thing I want to refresh your memory on is the theoretical difference between so-called time-dependent versus concentration-dependent antibacterials. So for time-dependent antibiotics, the key pharmacodynamic parameter is meant to be the time that plasma concentration remains above the minimum inhibitory concentration during the dosing interval. So remember that the MIC is the lowest concentration of an antimicrobial that will inhibit the visible growth of a microorganism after overnight incubation in a laboratory. So a higher concentration of time-dependent antibiotics does not result in greater antibacterial activity. In theory, for these drugs, it is about how long the concentration remains above the MIC at the site of infection, rather than how high the concentration reaches. And it's important to maintain levels above the MIC for a high percentage of the time. In practical terms, this means that the dosing interval is critical and missing doses can compromise efficacy. The time-dependent antibacterials include the penicillins, cephalosporins, and carbapenems. Now, concentration-dependent antibiotics, the key pharmacodynamic parameter here, is meant to be the ratio between the peak plasma drug concentration and the MIC of the antibiotic in question. So in other words, their antibacterial activity is related to how high the concentration reaches at the site of infection, rather than how long it remains above the MIC during the dosing interval. And concentration-dependent antibacterials include the fluoroquinolones and the aminoglycosides. Okay, so with that said, here is a quick theoretical reminder about some of the antibacterials that are used most commonly clinically. Now, obviously, by necessity, I've been very, very uh, sort of selective in the ones I'm going to mention because there are a fair number that are used clinically. And I just really wanted to remind you about a couple of the ones that I think, you know, I hear about people using and I've used myself more commonly than the rest. So the most widely used antibiotics in dogs and cats are the time-dependent beta-lactam antibiotics, examples of which are the penicillins, the cephalosporins, and the carbapenems. Now, amoxicillin clavulanate is probably one of the most frequently used antibacterials in small animal practice. And this is a beta-lactam antibiotic, amoxicillin, that has then been potentiated by the addition of potassium clavulanate, or clavulanic acid. According to the 8th edition of the British Small Animal Veterinary Association's formulary, amoxicillin is active against certain gram-positive and gram-negative aerobic organisms and many obligate anaerobes, but not against those that produce beta-lactamases, for example, E. coli or Staph aureus. The addition of the beta-lactamase inhibitor clavulanate is meant to increase the spectrum of action and restore efficacy against amoxicillin-resistant bacteria that produce beta-lactamases. But the more difficult gram-negative organisms, for example, Pseudomonas or Klebsiella, 
are usually resistant to amoxicillin clavulanate. When you hear this kind of information that I've, you know, extricated from the BSAVA formulary, please bear in mind the theoretical caveats that I've presented before, you know, conveying this information to you. This is what it all says in theory, and this is what we're very accustomed to doing and using to guide our therapy. But we just have to be cognizant that real patients versus theory are not the same thing. Next, I was going to try and get into the cephalosporins in more detail too, but then I decided that this was probably not a sensible idea for this podcast. So all I'll remind you about is that there are different generations of cephalosporins. First generation cephalosporins, for example, cephalexin, are active predominantly against gram-positive bacteria. And successive generations have increased activity against gram-negative bacteria albeit often this comes with a reduction in their activity against gram-positive organisms. And cefuroxime, for example, is a second-generation cephalosporin. The next antibacterials I wanted to remind you about are the fluoroquinolones, which, for example, include enrofloxacin and marbofloxacin. Again, quoting from the BSAVA formulary, it says... Ideally, fluoroquinolone use should be reserved for infections where culture and sensitivity testing predicts a clinical response and where first and second line antimicrobials would not be effective. I sort of feel like I should repeat that statement given how much fluoroquinolones are overused, but I'm not going to. Anyway, according to the formulary, they are active against mycoplasma and many gram-positive and gram-negative organisms but relatively ineffective against obligate anaerobes. And the last agent I wanted to mention is metronidazole, which according to the BSAVA formulary should be used for the treatment of anaerobic infections, giardiasis and other protozoal infections. And we know that rightly or wrongly, it is very common practice for people to use combination therapy of something like amoxicillin clavulanate with metronidazole added in addition to try and increase the coverage against anaerobic organisms. Okay, look, I'm going to stop there with the theory refresher, but I hope you found it useful revision and that it serves to set some context for what I'm going to focus on now, which is discussion around antibiotic stewardship and responsible antibacterial use in companion animal practice. And I'm going to do this by presenting some of the key points from a review article that I found, which is from Vet Clinics of North America Small Animal Practice in March 2015. The article is entitled Antimicrobial Stewardship in Small Animal Veterinary Practice from Theory to Practice. The authors are Luca Guadabassi and John F. Prescott, and I will of course include the reference in the show notes. As always, do get in touch if you would like a copy of the article. <clears throat> okay, so the authors start by defining the nature of the problem, and they argue that antimicrobial resistance is one of the greatest challenges currently facing small animal veterinary medicine. During the past decade, various multi-drug resistant bacteria, or MDR, have emerged and spread among dogs and cats on a worldwide basis. The major, current NDR, <coughs> sorry, the major current MDR organisms of concern are methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus pseudo-intermedius, MRSP, 
and E. coli producing extended spectrum beta lactamase, or ESBL. However, these bacteria are just the tip of the iceberg because multidrug resistance has diffused in other common bacterial pathogens encountered in general practice, such as Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Enterococci. Additional MDR bacteria that are more likely to be isolated from animals presenting to referral centers, according to published data, include methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, carbapenemase-producing E. coli and Klebsiella pneumoniae, and MDR Acinetobacter baumani. That's a bit of a, a challenging mouthful to say. So all these MDR bacteria are frequently resistant to all conventional antimicrobials licensed for animal use, and therefore pose a serious threat to animal health by increasing the risk of therapeutic failure and the recourse to euthanasia. MRSP, MRSA, and MDR gram-negatives are important hospital-associated pathogens that can be transmitted from patient to patient through contact with personnel, with healthy animal carriers, and with contaminated environmental surfaces. Significant public health concerns exist because of the possible risk of animal-to-human transmission, and in part also because of the increasing use in small animals of critically important antimicrobials authorized for human use only, such as the carbapenems. From the um, pet's carer's perspective, infections caused by MDR bacteria contribute to increased veterinary expenditures because of additional and more expensive antimicrobial treatments, longer hospitalization, more visits, and more diagnostic tests. Moreover, the negative consequences of MDR infections in household pets include emotional and social effects on the owners and their families. Hospitals and clinics affected by outbreaks of MDR bacterial infections also can be impacted economically by the loss of revenue due to loss of reputation and decreased caseload, decontamination procedures, closure and coverage of patient bills. This situation is worsened by the slow development of new antimicrobial drugs observed over the past decades. And the few truly new agents are reserved for human use in hospitals, and it's unlikely that these drugs will be authorized for veterinary use in the years to come. Thus, it is of paramount importance to preserve the efficacy of the veterinary antimicrobial products available today. So I think the owners, are, uh, the authors rather, have done a good job there of defining and describing the nature of the problem. And they contend that antimicrobial stewardship programs, or ASPs, are a cornerstone of the response to the AMR crisis in human medicine, but are still largely underdeveloped in veterinary medicine. And this is kind of what this review article is trying to help us with. So the authors say that the aim of this article is to indicate the necessary steps that should be taken to establish ASPs in small animal veterinary practice, taking into consideration the many and remarkable differences between the human and the veterinary sector, and indeed the remarkable differences within veterinary medicine. Although the article highlights the structural and economical constraints that make implementation of ASPs used in human healthcare facilities difficult in small animal practice, it provides suggestions and approaches to overcome such constraints and to move toward practical implementation of effective veterinary-specific ASPs in small animal hospitals and clinics. 
The authors emphasize the multidimensional and the mindset nature of good stewardship practice, as well as the importance of an entire team-based commitment, similar to that required, for example, for the implementation of infection control practices. They then go on to describe what they refer to as the antimicrobial paradox in small animal practice. And they say that one of the most effective strategies to manage AMR in human hospitals is to reduce the overall consumption of antimicrobial agents and rationalize the use of the most valuable drugs. So, for example, carbapenems, fourth-generation cephalosporins. And these most valuable drugs are generally reserved for empirical treatment of life-threatening infections or infections that cannot be treated otherwise on the basis of susceptibility data. But the authors argue that this strategy is almost completely flipped in small animal practice, where the list of drugs are not authorized and the most powerful veterinary antimicrobials, namely beta-lactamase-resistant penicillins, cephalosporins, and fluoroquinolones, are in fact widely used as empirical first-line agents in primary care, including for the treatment of mild or self-limiting infections. The high consumption of these drugs provides a strong selective pressure in favor of MDR bacteria that are resistant to extended-spectrum beta-lactams and fluoroquinolones. But the authors acknowledge that they are indispensable drugs for management of common bacterial infections in small animals, including complicated skin and urinary tract infections and various life-threatening conditions. In terms of what antimicrobial stewardship actually is, the authors say that the term antimicrobial stewardship is used to describe the multifaceted and dynamic approaches required to sustain the clinical efficacy of antimicrobials by optimizing drug use, choice, dosing, duration, and route of administration, while minimizing the emergence of resistance and other adverse effects. To their mind, the word stewardship implies the obligation to preserve something of enormous value for future generations, and they say it resonates in a way that prudent use or judicious use does not. So stewardship is the active dynamic process of continuous improvement in antimicrobial use and is an ethic with many steps of different sizes by everyone involved in antimicrobial use. Stewardship thus links, for example, frontline veterinary practitioners with laboratory diagnosticians, owners, drug regulators and pharmaceutical companies. And in Table 1 of the review article, they provide some examples of elements encompassed by the term antimicrobial stewardship that affect the emergence and spread of resistance. And these include practice guidelines, dosage considerations, and clinical microbiology data. The authors also talk about a 5R approach to stewardship, acceptance of responsibility for resistance as a potential effect of antimicrobial use, and for reduction, replacement, refinement, and review of antimicrobial use on an ongoing basis. The next point the authors make is that while in human medicine, antibiotic stewardship is very much something that is attended to at the individual hospital level, in veterinary medicine, it tends to be more about national and international surveillance and guidelines, and potentially also legal or regulatory interventions that are imposed by national authorities to restrict or ban specific drugs, 
to limit profit derived from antimicrobial dispensation and taxes or penalties to prevent antimicrobial overuse. Now, while the authors support this broad, multifaceted approach to sustaining the efficacy of antibiotics for the long term, they also say that they recognize the need for establishing hospital-based antimicrobial stewardship programs in small animal practice. The next part of the review article discusses establishing an antimicrobial stewardship programs, and the authors say that no guidelines are available for the development of ASPs in small animal clinics. So they present us with information and guidelines from non-veterinary specific resources. I'm not going to expand on this any further, but as I mentioned, if anyone wants a copy of the review article, then do just let me know. The authors also talk about the role of the microbiology laboratory. And actually, I suspect this is something that we could all get better at encouraging and engaging with. So they say that liaison with a microbiologist at the diagnostic laboratory, which in contrast to human hospitals is normally placed outside the clinic environment, is an essential aspect for implementation of ASPs in small animal veterinary practice. The microbiology laboratory is not only supposed to provide timely and accurate species identification and antimicrobial susceptibility testing. Its role and responsibilities go beyond correct specimen testing and reporting of results and include attention to the pre-analytical and post-analytical components of testing. Selective reporting of susceptibility profiles can be used to discourage unnecessary use of so-called broad-spectrum agents that are not licensed for veterinary use. Indiscriminate reporting of positive culture and susceptibility data on likely contaminants or non-pathogenic commensals should be avoided because this practice may lead to inappropriate antimicrobial use. Last but not least, the microbiology laboratory should generate annual reports summarizing the trends of AMR at the clinic level or at least at the regional level. In the next part of the review article, the authors talk about antimicrobial stewardship strategies, and they say that various strategies have been shown to improve appropriateness of antimicrobial use and cure rates, decrease failure rates, and reduce healthcare-related costs in human hospitals. And they provide an overview of the most successful strategies used in human hospitals, with a focus on their implementation in small animal veterinary practice. The first strategy relates to education, and they mention a variety of approaches. A couple of things here that I wanted to highlight are that the authors say that an outstanding example of a readily and freely accessible web-based and app-linked resource aimed to support companion animal veterinarians to develop practice policies for antimicrobial stewardship is the PROTECT site of the British Small Animal Veterinary Association. And I will, of course, provide the link to this in the show notes. So PROTECT stands for Practice Policy, Reduce Prophylaxis, Other Options, Types of Bacteria and Drugs, Employ Narrow Spectrum, Culture and Sensitivity, and Treat Effectively. Among other initiatives taken to support education in this field, the Federation of European Companion Animal Veterinary Associations has released several posters addressing responsible use of antimicrobials, appropriate antimicrobial therapy, and hygiene and infection control in veterinary practice. 
And again, I will provide the link to, uh, in the show notes. The authors then go on and talk about the development and implementation of guidelines. They say that general or generic guidelines providing statements of principles of prudent antimicrobial use have been developed in recent years by most national veterinary organizations. They argue that although important from a conceptual standpoint, the clinical guidance and impact of these general generic guidelines is likely to be limited. Standard texts have included investigator recommendations on first choice, second choice and last resort antimicrobial agents. And more recently, evidence-based clinical antimicrobial use guidelines have been developed using approaches similar to those for human guidelines. These have typically involved national or international expert panels reviewing and assessing the quality and strength of published literature to produce recommendations for diagnosis and for management of specific conditions. The authors argue that the impact of national practice guidelines is likely higher than for international guidelines because they take into account local factors regarding legislation, drug market availability and prevalence of resistance. Many veterinary speciality organizations also have developed guidelines ranging from generic prudent use guidelines to practice-specific or disease-specific guidelines. But it's good to see that the authors concede that veterinary practice guidelines are negatively affected by numerous knowledge gaps regarding dose-effect relationships between antimicrobial use and resistance, antimicrobial consumption, resistance prevalence, drug-to-drug superiority, and optimal duration of treatment. But the authors argue that although there are limitations, national guidelines are an essential milestone for the development of local antimicrobial policies and more complex antimicrobial stewardship programs at the clinical level. Now, with all of that said, I thought I would read you the generic guidelines that the authors relay in the paper um, about the rational use of antimicrobials. And the authors do provide a couple of references in the review article for these guidelines. And as I say, I'm just going to read these uh, verbatim from a box in the review article. So the points are as follows. Number one, antimicrobials should be used only when there is evidence or at least a well-founded clinical suspicion of bacterial infection. Two, Antimicrobials should not be used for treatment of self-limiting infections. 3. Antimicrobial, pathogen, infection site and patient factors should be considered when choosing an appropriate treatment. 4. Cytology should be used as point of care testing to guide antimicrobial choice for relevant disease conditions, e.g. otitis and urinary tract infections. 5. Antimicrobial susceptibility testing should be performed if there is suspicion of a complicated or life-threatening infection, if the patient does not respond to initial treatment, if the patient has a recurring or refractory infection, if the patient is immunosuppressed, if there is a need to monitor the outcome of therapy, so for example, long treatment period, or if the patient is at risk of infection, with multi-drug resistant bacteria. Point six is as narrow a spectrum therapy as possible should be used. 
Seven, topical therapy should be preferred over systemic therapy for the treatment of superficial skin infections. Eight, antimicrobials should be used for as short a time as possible. Nine, extra label use should be avoided when on-label options are reasonable. Ten, the use of critically important antimicrobials not authorized for veterinary use should at least be restricted to rare and severe patient conditions, e.g. diagnosed life-threatening bacterial infections that cannot be treated by any other available antimicrobials, provided that treatment has a realistic chance of eliminating infection. Antimicrobial therapy should never be used as a substitute for good infection control and good medical and surgical practices. 12. Perioperative prophylaxis should be used only when indicated and follow standard guidelines. And 13. Clients should be educated to ensure compliance. Now, you know, I'm well aware that in this sort of audio format, it will be difficult for you to take in all of those points and to think on them. I would recommend that you listen to this podcast again, or at least flip around it to some bits like this. But also, as I said, please do get in touch and ask for a copy of the review of article if you want one. And also the show notes will contain some of the key bits of information uh, that I'm mentioning in this podcast. Now, another point that the authors make is that although there has been a marked increase in available guidelines, there has been little assessment of their impact on practice. Which again is good to um, is good to see that they acknowledge because as always you know the theory is one thing, the impact on real life and on practice is is yet another. One thing I should say is that this article was from March of two thousand and fifteen and would have been written, I presume, therefore in two thousand and fourteen. And what I've not personally done is to scour the literature to see if there have actually been any published reports looking at the impact of guidelines since the authors would have done their literature search for this review article. Another very important point that the authors make is that the effort spent on introducing guidelines on educating healthcare providers and in monitoring the response to guidelines is often slight when compared with the effort of development, but it's also critical to success. Compliance with guidelines may be poor because of, for example, inadequate communication, differences of opinion regarding recommended treatments, and resentment of measures to prescribe individual decisions. Thus, it is crucial that national and local veterinary professional and regulatory organizations allocate sufficient time and resources to promote guidelines and facilitate compliance. In terms of other antimicrobial um, stewardship strategies, the authors mention prescription approval, post-prescription review, and computer-based decision support. And I'm not going to expand on these here, but again, please feel free to request a copy of the article and read these bits yourself. The article then ends with a discussion of measuring the outcomes of antimicrobial stewardship programs and a discussion of potential barriers to the implementation of these programs. What I thought I would do to end the podcast is to read you the key points from the review article. Again, I'm kind of reading this directly from the article because I think it provides a good summary overview of the key points that the authors were trying to make. 
So the authors write that there is increasing recognition of the critical role for antimicrobial stewardship and infection control in preventing the spread of multidrug-resistant bacteria in small animals. Establishment of antimicrobial stewardship programs requires one, coordination, ideally by an infectious disease specialist, or at least by a clinician with strong interest in and good knowledge of antimicrobial resistance and therapy. Establishment of these programs also requires commitment by the clinical staff and collaboration with the microbiology laboratory. The authors go on, even in the absence of specialist help, by accessing the increasingly available resources, veterinary clinics should at least develop, implement and periodically update local antimicrobial policies indicating first choice, restricted and reserved drugs. Educational approaches, clinical guidelines, pre-prescription approval, post-prescription review and computer-based decision support are the most effective strategies to accomplish best practices in antimicrobial stewardship. The main barriers to implementation of antimicrobial stewardship programs comprise 1. Economic uh, sustainability 2. The lack of formally trained infectious disease specialists 3. Limited use of culture and antimicrobial susceptibility testing 4. Scientific knowledge gaps for assessment of resistance, development of evidence-based guidelines, and optimization of antimicrobial therapy. And 5. Absence of standardized methods for evaluating the outcomes of antimicrobial stewardship programs. Before I finish, I just want to say that although I'm not going to discuss um, this other paper at all, In 2015, ACVIM published a consensus statement on therapeutic antimicrobial use in animals and antimicrobial resistance. This was published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine, and as you know, this journal is now open access online, and I will include the link to the consensus statement in the show notes. Okay, so that brings me to the end of this episode. As always, there are references in the show notes and you can also find a link to download a transcript there, which again, for this episode, may be something that you will find useful. Please do get in touch if you have any comments or questions um, and you can do that either using the contact form on the website. You can email me at shailenjassani at gmail.com via Twitter at vetemcc or via Facebook at the Veterinary ECC Small Talk page. And if you have not already joined, then do request to join our private Veterinary ECC Small Talk Facebook group. I also just wanted to mention my Small Animal Emergency Medicine app, which at the moment is for iOS only, so iPhone and iPad. Thank you so much to those of you who have already bought it, and especially to those of you who have left ratings and review comments in the Apple App Store. You can find the app by searching for Kimba Veterinary, so K-I-M-B-A, in the App Store, or you can go to kimbavetapps.com, and there is a link to the app uh, in the App Store on that website. And I will, of course, include links in the show notes. And to those of you who are Android users, it hopefully won't be too long now. Um, I have actually been sent a test version for me to check through, and I will try and do that as soon as I get some time. 
And then lastly, my usual request to help support the podcast by rating and reviewing it in iTunes and also by sharing it with any friends and colleagues who you think would also benefit from the content. Now, look, I will really try to get the next episode out in four weeks' time. But as I mentioned at the beginning, um, please do bear with me if the releases are a bit unpredictable. And until next time, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.